Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, whether for fun or profit. Welcome to another GeoMob Podcast. This morning, I'm really excited because I've got Max Lennerman back on the podcast. I think this is the third time that we've had Max on the podcast, which is a little bit of a record, Max. Congratulations. Not many people get invited back a third time. Um, so you're up there with Denise McKenzie. Congrats to both of you. Anyway, why is Max here? Um, over the weekend, or just before the weekend, um, OpenAI released their generative AI product technology for producing video. You can type in a text prompt and you get out a video. And Max wrote a fascinating blog post about this, um, which asked whether we were facing an online existential crisis. And I read this blog post and thought, wow, that was really good. It was thoughtful. And it made me think that actually... Max is a geographer, he's a data scientist, uh, he's also a creative who produces podcasts and produces video content, and that it would be good to get him on the podcast to talk about generative AI, to talk about how it's been applied to the geospace, and how it might be applied in the future. And... I prompted a question to him, which maybe we'll get an answer to by the end of this podcast, which is, is this a marriage made in heaven, or is it just the beginning of a nightmare? Anyway, Max, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you back here. Yeah, thanks for having me on uh, so again. Before um, we get excited. to talking about generative AI and geo, um, just a quick word from you about what you're doing with Minds Behind Maps and what you're doing apart from that, just so that we can update on where you're, what you're doing at the moment. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, Months Behind Maps is the podcast I've been doing since uh, 2021. And it's these long conversations with people doing anything about basically modern mapping, um, satellite images, the, the tech, the implications, the policies. So I talk to a lot of people that think a lot about maps. And then on the side, I'm a geospatial data scientist uh, working a lot wow, with uh, satellite images. So what a combination, because we're going to need both of those before we get to the end of this podcast, I think. So <laughs> talk about why you asked the question of whether we were facing an online ex existential crisis. So, yeah, actually, maybe I uh, need to, I need, I should have rephrased that title. It, it's kind of written as a, my own existential crisis is kind of how I felt, not necessarily as a society, but more for myself. Like, that's how I felt when uh, watching Sora, the name of, of OpenAI's model. And by the way, a caveat to mention, at the moment we're recording this, it's in very private uh, beta. So nope. I haven't tried it. I'm guessing you haven't either. I don't think I know anybody who has tried it yet. So we all we have is basically what OpenAI is willing to show us. And what that means is there's going to be some things that don't go as well. But basically the gist is uh, a year ago we were making fun of uh, Will Smith's videos eating spaghetti and it looked just horrible and it was just very laughable and this tech felt like it was very far away. And now um, you know, just a year later, a 
less than a year and a half after ChatGPT starts uh, going out, we have access to these models that you write a text in and you get a video out. And for me, that was like a whoa moment because text is one thing, but video is a whole other one. And I spent a lot of time thinking about video and, and making videos, trying to explain complicated topics like, like satellite images to, to people. And so it's something that I think a lot about and I put a lot of effort into um, and satellite images are just, you know, big cameras, big, very expensive cameras in the sky. And so basically, you know, we have a fundamental shift in how we're creating that stuff. One is you have a sensor, a camera, um, and you're, you're taking, you have a sensor that records photons, and the other is just kind of making things up out of nowhere. Um, and so I just thought it was really interesting to, to try to write about it, and I honestly still don't quite know what I think about yeah. it, so I just write about and, it. <laughs> I mean, I'm just thinking, as you're saying that, you know, that we're talking about generative AI, and we started with, we started with text first, or did we start with images first? I think text first. Yeah, I mean, this, this field has been going on for, for a long time. It's just that the, the results were not very good. So apart from people that were really interested in artificial intelligence, that there wasn't much. In the image side, you had uh, generative adversarial networks, GANs, and that was really big like 10, 5 years ago. Um, but the results were not that good. Uh, it was really interesting, but it wasn't that great. It wasn't that easy to use. I think what really brought it to the light of day for the bigger public is, I would say, ChatGPT in, in December 22. Um, and then you have things like Midjourney, Dali, all the text to image. So you write a prompt and that comes later in 20. And you could do amazing things. I, like that. you know, I've downloaded stable diffusion so I can run that on my laptop. Um, and it's amazing, you know, and it's amazing. Yeah. I try, I, I, I put in a, a few prompts to try and get a map out and it was quite amazing. You get maps, right? I mean, they're obviously complete. You know, yeah. if I put a, requesting to generate a map of the area that I live in, it gives me something. It's not the correct map or anything, but it looks like a map. It might even have a few place names on it that are adjacent to where I am. Um, it's scary how good it is whilst it's completely wrong. Um, yeah, and I think that's sort of one of the problems that we've got. And I think that's what you were talking about when you were talking about this video. Well, I think there's a few things. I think there's, what I mentioned is like, there's some applications where it's, it's actually really handy to have like creating ideas, like tinkering around. It's really nice to have something where you can just throw ideas at the wall and have an idea of what does this look like? Okay, I want, um, you know, we can stay on maps, but if, you, if you're trying to write, uh, I don't know, a fantasy book or something like that, and you want like, okay, I want this thing, but in the style of a Lord of the Rings, like, what does that look like? Or like, what does a, a satellite image, but yeah, in, in Mordor look like? Like you can, and people have done stuff like that. And it's pretty fun and it's pretty cool. Um, but then when you're trying to convince people and you're trying to, you know, have policy decisions and things like that on, on hard data, like that's where it's become a little bit uh, tricky. But you know, one could make an argument that we've had this problem with, with text for forever. Basically, since we've had the printing press, you can write 
anything. Like you can just write something even by hand and, you know, you can say Bob did this and Alice didn't like it. And like, why would I trust that? So we've had this problem of trust. It's just that now it's expanded to video and images, things that we used to think we could trust. Um, and the, the production value is very interesting. And I think one of the biggest differences between text and video is that, um, it's, I think text, one thing I wrote about is people are used to writing, like most humans know how to write. Most humans don't know how to make video. Uh, like they can appreciate it, but they don't necessarily know how to make it. And so you can see a, um, uh, like a really cinematic movie, I don't know, like the new Dune movie is going to come out. And most people can see that and be like, wow, I have no idea how they did it. It looks amazing. And... Um, most people know what it takes to write really good stuff. Um, but so video, now you can make things that look cinematic. Um, same for satellite imagery. Uh, people don't really quite grasp how it works, and you can make things look um, like they aren't there. Like the, the value of evidence is going to change. Um, yeah, this is going all over the place, no, and, and um, we don't really know where it's going. Let's go to geospatial you know, because that's the where you and I both, well, I used to work, you still do work. And we're not yet using generative AI in geospatial, or not that I know about. Well, I would argue yes and no. Like, I think it really depends. Like, one interesting example that comes to mind is, um, Black Shark AI is the company that did some of the tech for Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020. Um, and so they did, they took a lot of Bing aerial imagery from Microsoft. Um, and their job was to make uh, buildings look somewhat realistic around the world. So the, Microsoft was making this huge, big new flight simulator. And uh, I've been into those for, for quite a while. I have some friends that are really into those. Realism is a really big deal. Um, and so it's entertainment, but it's also still trying to simulate things. And so what they've done is you take uh, satellite images and you need to have buildings that look like they're buildings. Um, and so you can do things like photogrammetry, but that ends up having these weird edges and, and shapes and things like that. So one... Uh, thing they've done is, is basically just using machine learning and it's saying like this is what buildings should look like from the top and so let's build a model that can just recreate populate the buildings everywhere that's not gen ai in the sense that uh you know the, a, bit, a lot of the press is talking about it where you just type in a text but it's a very narrow constrained version of let's use machine learning to try to generate new stuff where we think it should be so that it just looks nice enough. And if the height of the building is wrong, nobody really cares because they're going to hand make, you know, the Eiffel Tower and the London Eye and things that people actually care about, they're going to be handcrafted. But I think for this thing where it just needs to look convincing and if it's not accurate, it's kind of fine. We've been using this a lot. Right. We've just yeah. haven't been calling so it generative whether the AI. facade has got five windows on every floor or seven windows on every floor doesn't really matter. Exactly, yeah. But you might want to make a rule that it doesn't uh, right. stop mid-window. You know, like it has a, a, 
uh, integer amount of windows. Um, so there's there's things like that where you're going to want to tweak it a little bit. Um, but now if you're the Census Bureau, uh, you're going to be like, that's not good enough. I need to know exactly how many people can live in this in this building. Yeah, but the uh, planning authority the Census Bureau, or whatever. But I think you know what exactly, I mean. Exactly, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And so the, the, the use case is really what matters. Um, you know, if the, if the planning bureau is like, let's just use this tech and we can, all of a sudden our, our, our work is done, you know, you'd go like, hey, wait a minute, this is not really so the intended purpose. if we step purpose. back from, because I always try and make a distinction between AI and ML, between so-called artificial intelligence and machine learning. Because machine learning to me sounds like heavy processing, mechanical, working out the edges of buildings, for example, from aerial images and things like that. And once you've done that enough times and built a model, you can just apply that to a massive amount of data. Um, and we all got, well, I got excited by machine learning and certainly that moment, you know, and it's probably a dec more than a decade ago when you could start to use um, aerial imagery, remote sensed imagery, and extract features from it automatically. This seemed like you know, a massive breakthrough and a really killer application. Um, but now I'm wondering what could possibly go wrong. Well, I think... <laughs> I think it's a bit of a joke in, in people who work at this that like machine learning is when you talk to engineers and AI <laughs> is when you talk to the investors. Uh, but it's pretty much the same thing. Um, you know, OpenAI probably hires machine learning engineers. And, and you know, it's called OpenAI because it sounds cooler than OpenML. Um, but so I, I don't know if there really is a distinction. Um, I think one of it is just marketing. Um, and I think machine learning sounds maybe more technical to the average person. You know, if I'm at Christmas and talking about it to family, I'll probably say it's AI than machine learning. Um, yeah, the feature extraction is a, is a really interesting one. I think we're building more and more stuff. Um, one recent example is, is Facebook uh, Meta's Segment Anything, which is like a, a model where you can... It's pre-trained, and so that means that you don't need to collect uh, a lot of data. If you're trying to delineate parcel data, for example, in satellite images, you don't need to make a huge training data set of uh, painstakingly labeled parcel data. Um, you just pass an image, and it will try to delineate every single object in it. So it's still getting better, and there's still a lot of applications that are being built uh, on there. And the main thing is also, while this tech has been going on, the amount of available data and information, I'm talking about satellite data here, is just going exponential. Like there's some curves that show that, you know, from the 2000s, the, the number of Earth observation satellite is just like going exponential. We have more and more data. You, you can't just sit someone no. in front of an image all the time. So it's, it's incredibly valuable. Um, but at the same time, it's back to, it really depends what you want to, to use it for. Um, 
I, I talked to Gilberto Camara on the podcast recently, who was the director of INPI, Brazil's uh, National Research Institute, and for seven years, something like that, in basically in the mid-2000s. And he was, uh, they, they started really pioneering using satellite images all the way back in the 90s to map exactly how much deforestation and where was happening in uh, in the Amazon forest. And he was talking about how their accuracy was really important, but also consistency over time. And so you couldn't say, okay, we, we saw that uh, this whole area was deforested last year, but we changed our model. Now we realize actually it's twice as much because you, you shatter trust in, in authorities and things like that. So uh, there's a lot of applications where you're still going to want to know how much can you trust those results. And, and a machine learning model is going to give you a confidence. It's going to say, you know, this is right 90% of the time. Well, what about the, the 10%? And I, I feel like the reality of building machine learning models today, that's a bit the dirty, you know, truth is that there's still a lot of manual work. Uh, you've become an editor, basically, where instead of doing it yourself, you look at it, a model that's created a first... Uh, version and you just check if it's done its work correctly. And so it's not that we've removed all the manual work, it's that um, sometimes we think we might have, but there's still a lot of work in, in how we apply like what we think of segmentation um, in, in machine so learning. So I was thinking as you were today. saying that, um, and you were talking about um, extracting property boundaries or parcel boundaries, as you said. Um, and mm -hmm. I was thinking about, we're both in Europe. You're more in Europe than I am now because we're still in the <laughs> European continent, even if we're not in the economic entity. But the, mm -hmm. um, the agricultural policy and the subsidies regime for agriculture within Europe is very much based on field sizes, you know, agricultural, you know, areas of land, what crops you're growing on them, and there's a whole complex system of subsidies that's based on that. And when I was working quite a lot with the UK side of that and observing what was going on in Ireland and other countries, there were radically different approaches to this. Um, in the UK, it was all hardcore vector geography, yeah, I'd go back 10 years or more. Um, in, I think, Italy or maybe some other countries, it was all derived from remote sensing. Um, and these, these boundaries and how much the size of fields and the, the, the areas of crops and everything were critical for the farmer's income, you know. And in, in the UK, we wouldn't trust... Um, that sort of automatically extracted stuff. I think we may well have changed now. You know, I don't know what we're doing now, but um, you sort of get this thing, you know, and if you talk about parcel boundaries, it's the same thing. You know, if you're paying property taxes or municipal taxes based on property areas, those boundaries have to be accurate, you know, and people are going to be fighting over those things if they get them wrong. So, um, you know, we, we're not quite there yet, I don't think. Or it feels to me as if we're not. Well, also, I, 
I, first of all, yeah, I think that, that that trust is like the biggest element. Like you can automate stuff. That's great. It's still going to get things wrong, but it doesn't always know when. And so you, you need to like, part of it is not just a, a technical problem, but it's also like a, a, a people problem at the end of the day. Like many things of, you know, telling like, what does it mean when you have 90% accuracy? Like, what does that actually mean? Um, I used to, I, I did an internship at a, at a company here in the Netherlands, uh, like a few years ago, and we were doing, um, uh, mapping of, uh, fields like that. But one of the things that they mentioned that really stuck with me is that if you see a demo of like field delineation done in Europe, it's basically worthless because that's great in, in Europe where, a lot of the parcels are very neatly squared, especially here in the Netherlands. Like if you look at, at satellite images of the Netherlands, it's all rectangles. And then you go to some countries in Africa and they're tiny little plots of lands that don't have barriers, that don't have um, specific delineations and kind of go in and out of each other. And there's like a hole in one that's from another farmer. And now like you can't neatly do that. And, and so the problem is already a lot more complicated and it's still just uh, parcel boundaries yeah. because the real world is messy. And so there's also this thing of like, we want, our, we want our problems to nicely fit into a small category, but sometimes they go out of that. Um, and, and that's just like the, the traditional, we're still on like classification and segmentations and things like that. Gen AI is, I think, a, a whole other... So you said itself. something which really just caught my interest when you talked about trust, because when we read, you, and you go back to text, if we read text by somebody that we admire and we trust, we're going to have a much higher level of confidence in that text, whatever it's about. Um, you know, if a professor in any academic subject writes a paper, we're going to have take that much more seriously and give it more trust than if um, some random guy puts in 20 prompts into chat GPT and then claims it as his work. Um, when we get into geospatial, um, I think maps have always, maps of the classic case of, like you said, with video, Nobody understands how we make maps, or very few people understand how we make maps, right? And so the moment you get given a map, you just assume it's correct. You know, we all have a big laugh when Google Maps sends you the wrong way down a street or sends you through a path that's not actually drivable or something like that. And it happens one in... I don't know, one in a million, one in ten million times, you know. I mean, it's a... It's a, in terms of percentages, it's not even measurable, but it, it causes a big laugh when it happens. But fundamentally, most people believe what they see on a map. If you put data on a map, people are so impressed by the fact that you show statistics on a map as a choropleth or something else that they rarely question the statistical analysis, the geographic analysis that goes behind that. Um, and... You know, if when we start using AI, um, imagine if um, in Redlands, California, I'm sure they're working on this now, you could type a prompt and say to your GIS tools, give me a choropleth showing 
income per capita in five ranges uh, using um, these boundaries and then just waited for a map to be generated with no idea what it's actually doing behind the scenes and whether it's accurate. I think, I hope, <laughs> let's, let's go with hope, uh, that this is going to be dismissed very quickly. Um, I, part of what I wrote about is that I, I think like this is really cool. It just takes a little moment to, to sink in. Um, I think things that are easily provable as wrong or, tr or, or true, um, I, I think those are not going to last very long. Um, what I think might be some cool applications is um, imagine if we have, like, we, we probably have a lot of old uh, writings of people describing places, but we don't have maps of them. Um, and so that could be a cool, interesting approach, which is like, here's what this person in, you know, 1600, whatever, described this place. What would that look like on a map? And you can, like, fact track against the, the original text. Like, you, you could make, like, historical maps that didn't exist based on writings. Um, I, I talked to uh, Hongwei Liu, which is a guy who does indoor mapping, and he was saying, like, it's really hard to do indoor mapping. Like, everything you know about outdoor mapping just goes out the window. You don't have cars driving around. You don't have satellite images. Um, but you do have, you know, data around, like, where people are moving, things like that. Like, I think where some generative AI can come in is as a first draft to make maps of like, we have this vague information that doesn't fit on a map. What would that look like if we just translate it into, you know, 2D vector space? And then you can edit it and you can correct it. I think the things that are very easily dismissible as, as false for maps, I hope that these are just not going to have any credibility um, but these problems that we, we didn't really quite know how to map in the first place, I, I hope we can find some, some cool stuff. Yeah. yeah. I want to be hopeful I be as hopeful. well. So, I mean, that's an interesting example. So you, if you had, um, crowdsourcing, um, when we first started crowdsourcing, you know, in the early days of OpenStreetMap, lots of people were very doubtful and thought that, you know, too many amateurs would make too many mistakes for it to be valuable. But in fact, loads of amateurs gradually corrected each other until we got something that's very accurate and very valuable. Um, if we scale that up by a factor of a million or a billion, by crowdsourcing you know, people walking around buildings, for example, and we're getting lots of scrambled signals which are a few meters off because the GPS is being messed up going through the building. But over time, you'll start to see broad directions of travel and using AI, ML, whatever we want to call it, you would be able to start um, honing in on a more accurate understanding of the inside of a building. Um, certainly, you know, if you wanted to crowdsource every footpath in a city, um, you could get people to draw all of those footpaths, or you could get them just to switch on a feed from their phone, and gradually over a period of a few months, you'd be able to generate the footpaths um, 
in a city in exactly the same way as we've got the roads now and, you know, delineate the footpaths from the road. I, I see a lot of value in, like, taking one source of data and going to, to another. That That's why I was mentioning... Yeah, those text, those, those in, old historical yeah, like things. old text to a to a map. But I can see it the other way around, where uh, back to to trust, or not just trust, but let's rather go for explainability. I think is a very big one. So what I mean by that is you have an analyst uh, that looks at something in an image and sees something is like, whoa, this is evidence of this or that, and then you go tell uh, you know the person above you, and they're like, how do you know? How do you know that there's an evidence of, of this or that? Um, I talked to Jeffrey Lewis, which is an open source intelligence researcher. And so his job is looking at things on satellite images, on Instagram, uh, on Google Maps, and trying to get an idea of like what is going on in a country. And so one really interesting example, for example, uh, is he was telling me about this island or this this location where they were trying to figure out if they had nuclear ballistic missiles. And he basically said they can't. And the, the reason was the roads are too sharp. The angles in the roads are too sharp. Like the trucks that actually need to move those missiles, they're these long trucks and they need like smooth angled roads to go. And so he just looked at the roads and he was like, they can't, they can't wow. drive trucks here. And so if I look at that, I'm like, how do you know? And he's like, well, you know, I can explain the, the, the whole thing. Well, imagine if you like, now you take that and you can make an animation of what that looks like and why that truck couldn't drive. Like, this is where it starts becoming these interesting applications of someone that has this specific knowledge is trying to communicate it to someone. And visual element is something really valuable to communicate to other people. Another thing that I'm wouldn't be too surprised if it if it makes its way through is going from uh, SAR uh, data, so uh, synthetic aperture radar, to something that people actually understand. So radar images is this com complicated thing. It looks like a black and white optical image, but it's actually not. It's a distance measurement and an energy uh, received back. And it's very counterintuitive because your eyes think they understand what's going on, but usually it's not because it's a different physical phenomena. And if you spend any time in remote sensing, people are trying to do data fusion, which means that they want to take radar images and the same optical images and kind of try to smash them together. And historically, um, I don't think that's worked very well because those two things don't quite work. They're very different physical phenomena, but I think there's some interesting ideas, I don't know if it will work out, in using generative AI where we have this physical representation of the world in a radar image and now say, okay, from the same angle at the same time, what would an optical image look like? in this case. Because now I can show that to someone who's never seen a radar image and they can understand it a lot better because an optical image is, is a lot more obvious. Right. Um, so there's, there's applications like this where I think like explainability, where you have someone that has specific knowledge that can fact check that like this generated video or this generated fake optical image is actually correct. Like you have uh, an editor or a curator that can say, yes, this is actually good. Um, is still present, so it's not this unhinged thing, but I think it might make uh, explaining and using 
these complicated sources of data probably uh, uh, easier to interface with the rest of the world. And I think that idea of explainability um, needs to be combined with the the challenges of anybody apart from a very small number of experts understanding a massive data set. So it occurs to me that if you explain how you've derived something from a massive data set and you also expose the, the error, the, the potential errors, you know, the certainty or whatever of that data, of what you've derived from that data set, um, people can then assess that as to whether it's useful for whatever purpose they want to put it to. Um, I mean, we can't pretend that using AI or ML is going to be 100.0% accurate. But so as a human analyst, exactly. I think that's the thing is in a lot of cases. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, if you look at um, a traditionally surveyed topographic map, for example, there are going to be errors in it. You know, surveyors mm -hmm. make errors. Um, things are going to change after it's been surveyed that you won't get get into the map for until the next time you go around there, you know, which might be a year or it might be five years. So there will be errors and um, you need to, yeah, I mean, we really need the same level of explainability for the data sets that we're using now, which says this is how this is done. This is the level of accuracy and the level of currency and things like that. So, I mean, I think that will help. Um, are you worried about AI and geo? I mean, or excited? Part of like, well, I, I wrote this line. Let me see if I can find it because I was quite proud of myself for uh, writing that. Um, there's there's a part of me that is really excited. Like the um, um, the engineering me is is really excited. Like, whoa, this is super interesting. And um, the, the part of me that you know wants more people to be creative and tinker around is also really excited. This is some cool stuff. Um, then there's the there's a whole conversation around copyright. Um, you know things like uh, Copernicus satellites. Uh, if we stay on the mapping side, they cost so much money. All the data that went into training these models. These are artists and you know illustrators and all these people that put their lives into this, and it kind of just got scraped. Um, so there's this big component. There's a lawsuit at the moment between the New York Times and, and OpenAI. Um, I want that piece to be figured out, and that will tell me where, which way I want to lean. <laughs> um, I want to be excited because, yeah, it's it's some really uh, just mind-blowing, exciting stuff that we can actually even do that. Another part of me is like, wow, this is going so fast. Uh, I I don't know. Like, uh, I, I, I really like learning new things. I really like just doing creative stuff as well. It's it's really nice. Um, but just because we have ChatGPT, I don't think it means people are going to stop writing. Um, you know, I wrote this blog post because it helped me think. The the reasons why people are going to do certain things is going to change. One other thing I mentioned there is, I think this is going a little bit outside of, of geospatial, maybe not quite, but Everything that's stock photography, you go on a website about mapping, even they all have the same images because those are the royalty-free ones from the stock imagery. Um, those things are going to go away. Uh, so there's things that are going to go away, um, but 
we already have uh, a, a problem of just being flooded everywhere. And I think part of me is also then excited because there's going to be, in my opinion, uh, a thirst for authoritative voices and people who can say, like, I'm confident in this and this is, I'm not confident in that. And some people you can trust, like, back to what we've we've said, I, I mentioned reputation as, I think, one of the antidotes to this in, in the blog post. I think if uh, the USGS puts something out and they say, hey, we use some generative AI to fill in some areas where we didn't have proper data and we fact check it with the surveyors and things like that, I'm like, you're the USGS. I'm, I'm going to go trust you. Um, and so uh, I don't know. We'll see. But yeah, the, the engineer, the data scientist uh, in me is excited. The one about, you know, people doing creative stuff and being compensated doesn't really know. And then the citizen is also just kind of going along for the ride. Right. Um, I think maybe it's an age thing, Max, because I'm, I'm just struggling to cope with the pace of it and worrying about um, how fast it's going and how uncontrolled it seems to be. Um, and the... The genie's out the bottle. You know, um, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of uh, large language models out there. You know, he, anybody can get hold of one. Anybody can start doing this sort of stuff. And I'm not sure how... You, you can't stop that now, you know. I mean, so what we now have to do, we're now sort of in this thing where period where everybody's trying to regulate and control, you know, which is sort of New York Times struggling to fight its battle with open AI, you know, good luck to them on that. Um, I can't see how they'll make it work. Um, I think there's a, there's a, even if I were open AI, I'd kind of want to figure out the copyright part because um, if you, if you just blatantly take everything that's been created before and you make it unsustainable for people to make new things, eventually your training data set's going to run out. Like you, you need new stuff. You need people to keep writing new things and make new movies, record more podcasts and, and do things like that. And so if you make it unsustainable for things like that to happen, I think this whole thing is just going to come crumbling down. And so I think it's in their best interest to find a way to make it sustainable. I, I think, you know, the genie's out of the bottle. Um, I just think things are going to change. We used to trust pictures and, and, and videos. That's not going to happen no. anymore. And then we're just going to trust something else. Um, and I'm curious how that's going to go for, for satellite images. I follow a lot of people who post satellite images on Twitter saying, hey, look, this, uh, this uh, column of tanks is moving in this country or there's a fire in this place. And now it's just mostly going to be, you know, who is posting this? And it, it, are they, uh, you know, is it some random person on Twitter? But but that's already the case. I already think like that. And I think it's just going to become more important, um, just like in science where we, uh, we, you know, we do peer review. There's a lot of problems with peer review, but it keeps people accountable. It's like OpenStreetMap. One person can make a mistake and then people come in and say, hey, that actually doesn't make sense. So... I just want to think, like, 
I hope that we're going to just switch how we how we think and how what the barrier is to convince someone that something happened. You know, part of me wishes that maybe we're just going to go more to in-person events. You know, GeoMob uh, <laughs> yeah. is going to become bigger uh, because that's when you're going to know that, you know, these are real people talking about real stuff. Um, I don't know what podcasting is going to look like as well. That's no, a whole other thing. That's a whole new thing. Um, it, it is going very fast. So looking forwards, um, let's look forward, say, three to five years, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you foresee in the interface between AI and geospatial three to five years? Uh, not ask you to make big predict- predictions, but sort of broad brush ideas of what you think might be happening. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I think like, like I worked in, in radar imaging for a, for a while, and I, I'm still very close to that field. I think they have uh, a very big explanation, like explainability problem, and I think this is one chance that they can get at, at trying to make that easier. And I would not be surprised if some companies uh, try to hop on that. So using generative AI to try to better explain SAR. Um, yeah, I, I want to see some like weird, quirky, like nerdy applications. I think building trust. I really think that's going to be the the big problem more than the the technical side. You know, these models are just going to get better. So, you know, a year and a half ago, we didn't have ChatGPT. A year and a half, nobody was talking really about this stuff. We were talking about uh, transformer models a little bit and still convolutional neural networks. Um, And so I think we've had this like huge... Uh, jump, we're going to have, uh, it's going to get better, but then there's going to be this long process of trying to figure out how do we trust things. And um, one thing I was thinking about is um, I wouldn't be surprised if we have a new uh, image format or, or, or audio format. So now um, you put out a, a podcast, for example, or a video, that's a .mp3 or a .mp4. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if we there's this push to develop a new format that is like trusted not to have uh, AI or something like that, if that's something that people actually care about. Um, so governments would want to use something like that because they want to say like this thing actually happened. It's not like a, a made up story. And so you'd have something embedded in the format. I, I doubt that would really work because at the end of the day, a video is just a bunch of pixels in a grid. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see development in that direction. Okay. Um, I've got a hunch. I've been saying this for a while, and I think what we might see is traditional vector data that we know and we think we can trust being used as the training data sets for new feature extraction models and extracting more information from remote sense data. So I can imagine um, if we take OpenStreetMap and use that as a training data set, um, we've got hundreds of millions of features, which have all been, or most of which have been validated by somebody, right? 
Um, they certainly have multiple eyes on them. If you use that as the training data set um, and you recognise that features in London are different to features in Amsterdam or features in Dar es Salaam or wherever else, you know, and so you train, use the use the training model much more granularly in different parts of the world, um, the ability to do feature extraction um, in near to real time is going to be a massively powerful capability, I suspect. So there, there's, there's definitely, like, this is something that's happening today. One of the things that doesn't get much attention, I think is really cool, if you're into remote sensing, I would check this out, is just, like, uh, development of like what they're calling multimodal models, which is um, there's this paper from EPFL, this uh, university in Switzerland from Dennis Tuya. I can send it to you. Um, and they're training uh, a, a model basically to do everything uh, and nothing at the same time. And what that means is that they want to use Sentinel-2 imagery, which covers the, the world every 6 to 12 days, um, and a lot of training data. And then if you decide, okay, I'm going to want to do parcels in this country, that you just, instead of needing a really big uh, model, you're just going to need like five images of those specific use cases. And it's already like basically a huge pre-trained model. But taking that idea from five years ago, and making it a lot better. So there's still these developments that I think are a little bit more under the hood on these feature extractions to be on these more local problems that are still happening in academia and some of the research. But I mean, you can't really compete with OpenAI in, in the headlines these days. Uh, but, but there's definitely no. some interesting stuff going on in that direction. Okay, so we're not going to be out of jobs in three years' time? Uh, that's why I started a podcast. People are still going to want to listen to conversation, eh? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. Max, it's been fantastic. It's been great talking to you. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you for being back with us on the GMR podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun to try to make something a little bit uh, more timely as well. Uh, so thanks for having me. I always appreciate having a conversation together. Lovely talking to you. Take care. Bye. See ya. Thanks for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. Get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for topics we should cover. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly mailing list where we keep you informed about upcoming events. You can, of course, also follow us on Twitter where our handle is geomob. Thanks for listening and hope to see you at a GeoMob event soon. Mm -hmm.